This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. The topic of uh, the talk here is uh, uh, autism and gene therapy. And uh, I've been working on ideas uh, for gene therapy for a long time. And I, uh, I would like to tell you, I mean, what, what is the status, what we are, are doing for that, um, and, and also take this opportunity to really set the stage um, on what is gene therapy and why we should care about gene therapy and, and autism. Um, this is uh, because I feel that sometimes uh, my colleagues are working on gene therapy when, when they present or when they talk. Uh, I think they're often misunderstood, um, even by the community. Uh, of autistic individuals. Um, and, and, and again, because there is no contextualization of uh, what the scientists are trying to do here. So I decided to um, divide my talk in different topics. Um, but um, before I, I move on, I just would like to say that um, uh, I'm a faculty here at UCSCD. I'm also the director of the stem cells. Um, you are in a in a place where uh, human uh, stem cells are taking place. Uh, the labs are in that building. Um, uh, there are people from my lab here. If you meet one of them, you are welcome to ask them to tour the lab um, so you can go and, and, and check it out. Uh, my lab manager is around. She can uh, organize those things. Um, but also most importantly on my CV is that I'm a father of Ivan, and some of you know him. So Ivan is a is an autistic boy with 16 years old now. And uh, so most of my motivation is actually uh, because of him, because we uh, wake up together, uh, we interact, and, uh, and I uh, recharge my energies uh, because of him. So if, I, if I'm full of energy, it's because he's, I've, I've been around him uh, for so long now. All right, so um, the, uh, the way I decided to structure uh, this talk is in, in, in five steps. Uh, the first one is, as I started to say, to contextualize uh, the autism spectrum and, and exactly what we are trying to do here. And then I want to provide a very clear definition of gene therapy. Um, I still think that there are confusions out there. Um, it, 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 it is not a new concept for science, but it's becoming kind of a mainstream in society. So make sure that everybody understands. And then I'll introduce the human model. I mean, why we use a human model to uh, study autism. Um, I'll show you uh, the core of the science, which is the proof of principle that a gene therapy approach might work and why we are excited about that. And then I'll talk the next steps, what, what we are doing um, and what I think it needs to be done as a next step uh, for these to uh, become successful and, and, and move forward. All right. Um, all right. Let's start with uh, the uh, put that in a context. Um, and and the reason I'm doing that, uh, and for those who actually watch uh, the uh, the videos from uh, the conference last year, um, might remember that we start with a, a conversation with um, uh, a scientist uh, who had his research uh, shut off um, because of the lack of interaction with the community commu community of autistic individuals in in uh, in, in his uh, surroundings. Um, so they didn't understand why he was studying the genetics of autism, uh, and uh, the work was uh, temporarily shut off. Um, and, and thankfully, I mean, everything was uh, clarified, and, and, and he's back on track. 
Um, but we took that opportunity to have him talk and discuss here uh, with our community, I mean, about that experience. Um, so I'm good on our community because we have been doing this for several years. So I think uh, we interact really well with each other. So I, I'm not too worried. But because we have a hybrid event now and this is being broadcast um, worldwide, I, I'd rather, again, I mean, set the stage for what I'm going to say or talk about uh, gene therapy and autism. And uh, first, by contextualize autism spectrum disorders, this is what most, I would say, um, neuroscientists and, and medical doctors uh, will, will characterize as autism spectrum disorders. You have different levels of uh, autism. Um, High-functioning autism would be what we call level one, uh, where uh, these individuals will need some assistance. Um, some are uh, already fully independent, um, and um, so they don't really uh, need uh, too much more than that. And then you have in the middle, which would be level two, where um, they might suffer from some comorbidities or, 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 or some consequences uh, of autism and might require a little bit more of support. And then finally, we have, uh, we have level three, um, uh, where they, these, these individuals will definitely need some support, sometimes one-on-one, sometimes two-to-one, um, to have that individual functioning. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a large spectrum. And over the years, the spectrum has grown a lot. And um, I honestly think that um, in the beginning, I thought that this would be good because we have more representation. Um, uh, now I think that we need to divide it again. Uh, and I think there are discussions about how, how to do that, um, but that's not the topic here. So we have to work um, with these right now. Um, so, so again, I mean, this is what most uh, medical doctors and scientists will see. Um, what we see in societies is slightly different, um, would be something like that. You have perhaps in, in one extreme of the spectrum, um, what we call, um, the high functioning would be the Asperger's. And, and these are often what you see, uh, in movies, in TV shows. Uh, they're often called, uh, smart kids, genius, or they're just different. Um, some of them are completely independent. Some of them still requires like some help. Uh, most of those are looking for a job or they already have a job. They just don't, don't function well on that job. Um, and, and, and there are a vocal part of that that uh, fights for neurodiversity. And, and, and that's amazing. It is actually amazing to see how that community has grown up. Uh, to fight for what they really want. And we've seen here at the TPF, and, and we help that uh, uh, voice uh, to elevate uh, as well. But on the other side, you have what we are now calling, or, or some people are advocating uh, to call what, what, what would be uh, profound autism. And that's highly different. That's invisible to the mainstream society. So you don't see those kids. Most of the time because they don't go out. They stay at home. It's very hard uh, to leave the home with someone who is uh, severely affected. Um, so these are sometimes syndromic. Um, they might have like a, a syndrome uh, that are under the umbrella of autism. Um, they require assistance uh, 24-7. They will die if you leave them alone for one hour. Um, so they have no idea what's a job. They have no idea what's diversity. They are not part of any conversation. So, um, and I would, I mean, there are some data saying that uh, these are like 50 and 50% of uh, the whole spectrum. Debatable if those numbers are right. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, what's important here is that the extremes are getting 
very opposed to each other uh, to the point that uh, what one end of the spectrum is fighting for, for example, the Asperger's, inclusion, diversity, acceptance, uh, they would even disapprove words like patient, disability, intervention, cure, come on, I don't need that. Um, and, and again, I mean, uh, it was beautiful to see how this was growing over the years and the rise of uh, the neurodiversity among autism, something that we've been talking on, on these conferences for a long time. Um, however, we need to uh, be aware um, that the profound uh, autism uh, population cannot fight for anything because they cannot even talk. So most of those kids are nonverbal. They cannot uh, 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 they have like severe neurodevelopmental disorder. So most of the fights are actually done by the families or the parents um, who are, again, I mean, supporting them 24-7. So the time that they have for, to fight for something is really minor. So it's a, it's a very uh, sensitive um, population um, uh, uh, that uh, it's, it's, it's perhaps the most vulnerable among the spectrum are the ones with uh, profound autism. And of course, I mean, these are actually patients. They do have disabilities. They need intervention. And uh, their families are actually hoping for a cure. So there is nothing wrong about what those two, the two extremes want to fight for, the two extremes want for. We just need to understand that they are actually two extremes of the same spectrum, something that over the years it seems that we are losing um, uh, 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 this, the sense of uh, what, uh, what are the needs for those two, which, to be honest, uh, they are not uh, mutually exclusive because the profound autism will like to have inclusion, diversity, and acceptance at the same time. So not mutually exclusive, so we should not... Have put them against each other, but we should converge them, I mean, making them work together, which would be even better. So um, what I uh, want to point out is that um, for the topic of uh, what I'm proposing here, uh, which is gene therapy, I'm not talking about uh, Asperger's, I'm not talking about high-functioning autism, I'm talking about profound autism people that will die in one hour without supervision. So these are the ones that I'm talking about. So gene therapy, it's for those. So if you are not in that part of the spectrum, you don't need to worry about that because we're not studying you. We're not uh, providing any therapy for you. We are, we are doing for the other ones. So that's the contextualization. So let's move on to what is then gene therapy? Why um, we are doing that. So this is my definition of gene therapy, a way to overcome the consequences of a genetic mutation in a cell, hopefully restoring the proper function of the cell, tissue, uh, and or uh, behavior. Um, basically, we are trying to correct uh, something that you are born with, uh, some genetic mutations, um, and, and hoping to restore the proper function of uh, the cell tissue or the brain. Um, so how does gene therapy work? So for those who are not scientists, um, um, you might ask, I mean, how, how do you do that? I mean, you have about uh, uh, 86 billions of neurons in your brain that controls all, all your emotions, your behaviors, the way you talk, the way you present yourself. These are all orchestrated by 86 billions of neurons and about the same number of uh, known neuronal cells that helps the brain cells to orchestrate as well. So how do we fix a mutation in each one of these? So that's not an easy task. Um, so 
And this is how gene therapy works. So virtually what uh, a scientist can do is uh, to pack uh, the right version of the gene or enzymes that can fix the mutation of a specific gene inside a virus. And uh, we use virus because virus have a good way. They're very efficient on penetrating um, uh, human cells. I mean, after the pandemic, we all know that this is true now. Um, and we use a, a virus that does not uh, cause any harm to the person, uh, and it's called AAV, um, adeno-associated virus. Um, so this is like a, a, a very mild uh, flu virus. Um, so we we remove all the genome of that virus and we place uh, these enzymes or the correct version of the gene inside that virus. And then we use the virus to deliver it the correct gene or the enzyme that will fix the mutation back into the person. Those viruses will, um, would migrate to the nervous system and will deliver the correct copy of the gene to your brain cells, right? So in concept, that's amazing. That's, that's perfect. But practically, hmm, we are still have like a long way to go um, because there are several problems with this idea. Uh, your body might react uh, to the virus. Your body might react to the correct copy of the gene. Because remember, if you have a mutation, um, maybe um, your, your cells, your immune cells, never seen the correct version of the gene. Uh, so they might fight it back. And, and the delivery part is uh, the most problematic. Uh, the virus does not fully penetrate the human brain. It would infect only a few cells. Um, is not 100% correction. And um, sometimes there are doses problems. Uh, some genes cannot be... Uh, you cannot have like too much of the gene in there. You cannot have too low of the gene in there. So you have to control all of those aspects. So there's still like a fine tuning uh, problem uh, with this technology before it becomes like um, something that you can move on uh, into clinics. Although there are several clinical trials and protocols already uh, moving on. I mean, if you go to clinicaltrials.gov and just place um, in a in a search like gene therapy, you're going to see hundreds of uh, gene therapy clinical trials um, going on. So this is definitely moving to mainstream. It's not perfect, but it's the best what we can do right now. And, um, and so, I mean, it's a, it's a good tool. All right. Okay, so, yeah, why we're not doing that uh, for autism? We should be, be doing this um, for profound autism or, or the ones that we know the genetic mutation right away. Well, there's a problem that scientists have when we are trying to study autism, which is the lack of a model. And um, especially if you take like syndromic autism, profound autism, these are mutations in genes that affect your neurodevelopment. And um, meaning that um, you are actually born with autism. You don't acquire autism through your life. So your autism actually starts in utero. So how can we actually study uh, the brain of autistic individuals when they are forming in uterus without um, use of non-invasive technology. So we cannot do that. Um, instead, what scientists have been rely upon was uh, in different models, such as post-mortem tissues. I mean, people with autism eventually die. Some families donate uh, the brains uh, to research, and we have a couple of those, so we, we can study. Um, but the person is already dead. Uh, so this, the tissue is not alive, and the damage or the alterations is already formed. I mean, we don't capture what happens before, during the formation of um, the brain. 
Um, another way to study autism is to collect blood from people. But blood cells are not brain cells. Blood cells does not make uh, connections, does not have synapses, does not um, influences your behavior. So there is so much you can do with blood. And most of the genetics of autism was done in blood. So it's still a very useful model, but doesn't get to the brain. And then finally, we have animal models. Um, animal models are tricky because you can create mutations similar to the ones that you see in patients in a, in a mouse model. Uh, and the mouse model might seem autistic, um, but sometimes it's tricky because the mouse brain and the human brain, uh, they evolve in different ways. Um, and um, what, uh, what a, a mouse might be doing that seems like autistic, for example, having like a repetitive behavior, might have nothing to do with the circuitry or, 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 or the brain cells that actually um, do the same thing in humans. So most of the times, um, especially when we are moving to uh, treatment, um, mouse models have failed, uh, miserable, especially for the brain. So you can see as a scientist, uh, we don't have too much uh, options here. Um, and that's why I decided to bring or me and, and others in this field to take advantage of uh, stem cells, human stem cells, because with human stem cells, I can actually make brain stem cells. Stem cells are the ones that can differentiate or specialize in different brain tissues, including brain cells. And um, it was uh, in 2008 when a researcher called um, Yoshiki Sasai from Japan show us that uh, if you use a specific combination of factors, you can guide these cells to form brain tissues in three dimension. And uh, this was the first publication. Um, 2008 was when I was starting my lab and I saw that. I said, oh my gosh, that, that's the model I need for autism. So I started following his path and, um, and, and improving protocols um, that now uh, we have uh, way more robust than what he previously did. And so we could derive stem cells from autistic individuals and controls and compare them. So I can compare directly their brain cells um, in a dish, in a controlled uh, situation of the lab. So there are different ways of doing that. Uh, these are the different protocols that we have from stem cells. You can create brain organoids that have multiple brain regions, or you can guide them to specific brain regions. If you know where are the brain regions, for example, in autism, we focus a lot of... Uh, attention in the prefrontal cortex, uh, because we know it's a part that is affected in autism and it's a part related to um, human cognition um, and, and, and lots of processing of information happens in the cortex. So we now have tools um, to guide the stem cells to become um, cortex, a brain organoid, cort cortical uh, brain organoid uh, with the right proper cells that we want to study in the lab in a dish. So. Before I move on, let me just say that if you search now this technology in the media, you're going to end up with uh, names like, oh, they created a mini brain in a dish. So you give the impression that you have like a fully formed brain um, in a Petri dish, which is not true. I'll show you how they look like in a moment. Um, but this is enough for me to highlight the limitations of this technology that I want you to keep in mind. Um, because we are starting from stem cells, these neurons are still very mature. Um, they are not vascularized. We don't have vases passing through it. Um, so that's a problem. Uh, we might not have all the cell types because as an organoid, it means like a small size tissue. So it's, it's a tiny thing. It's not the size of the brain. Um, and we still have 
problems with reproducibility and translatability of this technology. Uh, so lots of things that uh, we need to overcome. And I think most of them, to be honest, um, we, we're going to overcome in the next uh, three to five years. Um, for example, vascularization. I think in the next uh, uh, three years, we're going to have a brain organoid that is vascularized. So we can grow them bigger. We can add other pieces of the brain there. All right. So this is our protocol. We have a very nice recipe to make brain organoids. We start with pluripotent stem cells. We neuralize them. We induce their proliferation so they can grow bigger. And then we end up with spheres um, that are about 0.5 centimeter. Um, and they contain about 5 million neurons in there. This is about the size of a bee brain. Um, and a brick can do lots of things. So you can, you can, you can say that um, even though it's a very reductionist approach, um, we have something that might be useful. And uh, this, this is a postdoc in the lab, and um, she's holding a plate um, which contains about 3,000 organoids. Each one of these white dots is uh, one uh, brain organoid with around um, 5 million cells in there. So we can use this um, to perform several experiments, and I'll highlight some of these experiments for you in a minute. But just to say that uh, the anatomy um, is really good. It resembles something that uh, is similar to a fetal human brain. There is a ventricular zone. Um, you, you have progenitor cells surrounding the ventricle. These progenitor cells migrate uh, and form the cortical plate, um, which is how the human brain is formed in uterus. So we recapitulate all these stages um, in, inside uh, the brain. Um, some people ask me, what kind of cells you have? Well, it really depends on what stage you're looking at. I start with single cells. I end up with 5 million cells because the cells replicate. Um, this is a snapshot at four months. Um, you have the pool of progenitor cells on top. You have most of uh, neurons being formed. These are excitatory neurons. This is one of the um, most affected uh, brain type in autism. Um, you have your astrocytes being formed at that stage, and some of the inhibitory neurons start to emerge as well. So as we age the organoids, the diversity of cell populations will actually change as well, making the model closer and closer uh, to the human brain. And that's why we like it, because we can recapitulate very nicely all these stages. And I'll show you one example where this technology um, was uh, very powerful, um, and it was another virus outbreak, but this time happens in um, 2015, 2016, back in Brazil. You might remember the cases of uh, macrocephalic babies that were born um, uh, in the northeast of uh, the country. Um, so at the time, there was no... Um, uh, link between the virus and uh, the uh, uh, defects uh, in, in, in the brains of the babies. So to prove causation, uh, what was done was to actually expose the Zika virus to the brain organoid, and we showed that the Zika virus could actually kill the progenitor cells. And so during the migration, they would fail, and you have like a very small uh, cortical thickness, which was mimicking exactly what um, was happening in uterus um, in, in those babies. Um, so most importantly than just proving the causation, just two years after the outbreak, we were able to use that tool to screen for antiviral drugs that could block the viral replication. And we find one that's called sovosbovir that was initially developed by hepatitis. Um, and so sovosbovir can even actually block what we call vertical transmission from mom to the fetus. If you have a, a, a mom that is positive for the virus and takes the drug, 
of the fetus would, would born without the virus. So this is from causation to treatment in two years, which shows that if you have the right tool, you can actually really advance sciences. And this was something that was missing uh, in the hands of the neuroscientists, a really good human model. Um, but autism is not about brain malformations. Um, actually, um, very small percentage of autistic individuals have alterations in, in their brains. Most of uh, the alterations that we see is about networks. And, um, and we always wanted to use uh, the organoids to actually measure um, the networks uh, that was formed um, during these stages. And the way we do that is by placing the organoids on top of a multi-electrode array. So these are electrodes uh, that are just capturing the electrical activity uh, of the organoid, of the tissue, over time. So we can measure that over time and, um, and see how it looks like. Um, scientists were completely skeptical that this would work. And I'll tell you why. Most of the... Uh, tissues that we had or the cultures that we had in the past, they were always below what we call the five hertz threshold. This is overall brain activity. So you can see 2D mouse, uh, 2D human cells or, or, or mouse neurons, they are always below the five hertz threshold. And a primate brain uh, fires at about 20 hertz. The mouse brain fires on 18 hertz. Um, so we never could get there. Even if you wait longer, uh, someone waited for 32 weeks, couldn't cross the 5 hertz threshold. Um, so with our protocol, this was uh, the big surprise of the lab. Um, we see that if you uh, wait uh, for uh, 40 weeks or about nine months of age, which is similar to the human gestation, you actually achieve that 40 hertz uh, 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 with, with the organoids that we were able to produce in the lab. So that was a big news. And, uh, and now we can actually study or use that as a model um, uh, for uh, conditions that affect neurodevelopment, such as neurodevelopment of the network, such as autism. Uh, most importantly, they do that in a very similar way to the human brain. Uh, we did that by um, looking at uh, EEGs, which is the same thing. These are electrodes that you place uh, in your skull, and you can capture the, um, the different oscillations. The reason why this was important is that because labs like mine, uh, we are too focused on the basic biology. We like to study genes, we like to study synapses, cells, but it's hard to bridge um, human cognition. Um, so we'll never be able to do that. But this is something that... Um, Cognitive neurosciences has been doing for a long time. They place the EEG on people's head and they correlate the different oscillations that they can get with different human behaviors, including autism. Um, so if you have autism, if you have seizures, your EEGs would be different. And, um, and, and that's what we want to do with the brain organoids. Can we bridge that? And um, again, I mean, uh, right uh, before we start doing that, the only thing that we could do is to look for individual neurons. Um, and I mean, individual neurons will not move you too far. And here's the reason. I'm, I'm, uh, this is the analogy of a stadium. Um, if I just look for one person, I don't understand what's going on in the entire stadium. Some people are quiet, and then they become active. Uh, some neurons are quiet, and then they become active. Uh, that's cool, but what, what does it mean? Uh, so it means that someone scores a goal, or it means that there is a ola going on in the stadium, right? I only know that if I capture all the electrical activity at the same time, and that's what we were trying to do with these um, 
multi electrode arrays. This is too complex, but just to say that there is a way to do that. And we team up with a, a colleague of mine here at UCCD, Brad Wojtek, um, for this study. And long story short, I mean, um, together with him, we showed that the organoids start to show these uh, 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 oscillations when they are about uh, four months of age. By six months, um, they are very stereotyped. Um, and by eight months, they become highly complex. The activity of the organoids correlates really well with the diversification of cell types that you have um, in there. All right. We also showed that this is similar to uh, the human neurodevelopment by creating um, a, a machine learning algorithm where we train the machine using the EEGs of the preterm baby brains. Uh, because we cannot do that in uterus. And then we feed the organoid with, um, we feed the machine with the data from the organoid. And, um, what we see is a very nice correlation between the trajectory of the human EEG, uh, compared to the, uh, network of, um, the, uh, brain organoid, which again suggests or confirms that the model we have is good enough for us to mimic uh, the oranges or uh, the alterations that we see in uterus, um, uh, including from people who has uh, mutations in those neurodevelopmental genes, um, which includes the population of uh, syndromic profound autism. All right. Having that model um, allow us to move forward and now try if the gene therapy approach will actually function uh, in the way that uh, we would expect. Um, we don't want to do that before testing in the lab. I mean, that might have like some side effect, might not work, might not be safe. So the first thing that we want to do is do no harm. So we want to make sure that it's working properly as we had expected before we enroll our kids in this kind of a clinical trials. Um, and um, so the first thing that we did was, okay, let's find a cohort of individuals or patients that are very similar to each other that all have the same mutation so we can test it. And we started with um, our uh, friends at the Pete Hopkins Foundation, um, and we collected fibroblasts um, from different individuals carrying uh, mutations in a gene called TCF4. Um, and you can know that the, the gene is mutation by doing genome sequencing. Um, so they all have genome sequencing. They all figured out that they have alterations in TCF4. So they are um, now classified as uh, Pete Hopkins um, uh, kids. And uh, we reprogram these cells um, and, and, and we start the work. So this was all uh, perform uh, with uh, Fabio Papis, who was a visiting scholar in the lab, and, and he was the one who led the study. Uh, so Fabio um, uh, collected the cells, uh, reprogrammed the cells. These are some of the characteristics that um, we keep in mind when we try to model uh, the conditions, try to see if we uh, see something similar in our um, brain organoids. Of course, I mean, there are situations that requires uh, other cell types that we don't have in organoid, for example, constipation. We cannot model yet constipation in a dish. Um, we might be able to do that in the future. So we are looking for more of the intellectual disability alterations in the networks, um, something like that. And um, so Fabio was able to created these uh, brain organoids. And one thing that he immediately saw it is that the size of the organoids uh, compared to the controls, uh, the controls here are the parents of those kids, um, they are smaller. Um, we can see that they do not grow as uh, you would expect um, for neurotypical individuals. Uh, so the size is about 50% uh, um, 
reduce compared to controls. Um, just looking for the uh, uh, diameter. And the expression of TCF4 is also uh, reduced in the patients, as we'd expect, uh, because they have mutations, so they're not expressing the full level of um, TCF4 in there. Um, also intriguing is that we do see some uh, malformations um, of the organization of these neurons inside uh, these organoids. For example, the organoids, the normal organoids or the control organoids, they will form rosettes. These are early stages of neurotube formation. You can see um, those rosettes or these morphologies on the parental organoids, but we barely see that in the uh, Pete Hopkins derived organoids. So once we have, um, and we quantify, for example, SOX2, it's a cell type that uh, proliferates in the brain. So you can quantify that and you show that there is a reduction in the number of uh, SOX2 proliferating cells in these organoids, explaining why they are so tiny, they are so small. All right. So what else can we find out using these organoids? Well, we can look around uh, all the genes uh, that TCF4 might be regulating. Uh, TCF4 is a master regulatory gene that controls the expression of downstream genes. Um, we do that by uh, doing like a gene expression profiling. Um, for those who are not neuroscientists, this is just a way to analyze uh, thousands of genes at the same time. And uh, the different colors means that they are, you have more of these genes or less of these genes uh, compared to controls. And, and, and by looking at these genes, we can guess what kind of a molecular pathways are affected as well. And we are able to uh, create uh, insights about how this gene is actually reducing the number of uh, SOX2 positive cells inside these organoids. Um, and we learned that uh, some of these uh, progenitor cells are actually controlling um, the identity of cortical neurons that would appear later, a little bit later in life. And these cortical neurons are important for the proper network uh, uh, to be formed. And uh, one of the markers for that is called CTP2. So this is a specific cortical neuron. And you see, again, because we don't have the right proliferation, you end up with um, a cortical population that is lower on these uh, CTP2 uh, neurons. Um, these neurons are involved on the microcircuitry of the cortex, but also between the communication of the two hemispheres, between the communication of the cortex and other cortical regions. So it's a very important population that might explain several of uh, the clinical symptoms of these patients. So it's very important that we are recapitulating that um, in a dish. Um, we also confirm these findings in post-mortem tissue. We, um, we were able to, um, uh, to perform the same analysis in one of the post-mortem tissues um, that we had. Um, and we, again, we validate that not only um, the CTP2 population was reduced, but also several of the uh, genes that we were expected to be affected by the lack of TCF4, they were affected as well as in the post-mortem tissue. So that give us like a confidence that um, what we have is really something that mimics the TCF4 uh, deficiency, or uh, as we call haploinsufficiency, because one copy is functioning, the other one is not um, in the brain cells of those individuals. All right, so we have a model, the model is working, the model now he recapitulates uh, some of the key parameters that we think is important um, for TCF4, what we can do. Um, so one strategy, and you probably hear about the CRISPR enzymes. So these are enzymes that you can use to correct uh, genetic mutations, but you can also use these enzymes to stimulate 
the expression of uh, genes. And I told you that um, those individuals have one of the normal allele, the normal copy of the gene is still functioning. So what Fabio decided to do was, okay, let's use CRISPR to activate or to overproduce uh, the right copy of the gene. Um, so maybe by doing that, you have more protein inside the cells and, and we can rescue that. So he designed uh, the strategy. It requires like some specific uh, guided RNA to the specific regions of uh, the TCF4. Um, and, uh, and he tested in the protocol of brain organoids. And to our biggest surprise, if you add the CRISPR uh, early on in, in, in the development of the brain organoids, you no longer see the macrocephalic phenotype. Um, you basically rescue the population. Um, you, 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 you rescue the, the, the expression of TCF4, but uh, as well as uh, some of the downstream genes. Uh, but one of the most, um, um, I would say surprising findings that, um, that he shows, it is that, um, something that we're not expecting to be rescued, which was some of the morphological alterations that he saw in, in these organoids. For example, here I'm highlighting um, in magenta there some of the uh, what we call cortical scars. So these are neurons that are just not formed properly in the cortex. Uh, but upon the treatment with uh, the CRISPR enzymes, um, he was able to, uh, to see that this was gone. So it no longer has these structural defects uh, in these organoids. So these, again, all very good news. Uh, the only bad news here is that uh, the CRISPRs are not yet ready for clinical trial. Um, these enzymes are still under development. They create what we call off-targets. Um, so they might activate other genes than the ones that we want. So it's not quite ready yet. Um, and then we thought, what about if we create uh, a second strategy where we just put uh, the correct gene inside the cells without trying to regulate the endogenous one? So... Um, it was a little bit tricky to do that because the expression of TCF4 needs to be regulated in the precise amount inside the cell. Um, so he created a very nice strategy um, that I'll, I'll, I'll spare the details now, um, but basically uh, by manipulating the repeats of um, this uh, micro E5 box uh, upstream to the promoter region, he was able to get the right amount of TCF4 inside the cells. And then um, uh, he, uh, he shows that the virus, uh, he, he built the virus carrying that gene and shows that the virus was enough to restore the expression in the brain cells and, um, and the, all the downstream genes um, that regulates the CF4. More importantly, uh, he then used the virus to uh, infect the brain organoids already formed uh, from Pete Hopkins' um, uh, patients um, in and he started to see back all uh, the, uh, the alterations that I previously described. First of all, he restored the expression of TCF4 inside the neurons. He was able to restore the structural defects caused by the lack of sox positive cells in there and um, the restoration of the CTP2 cortical neuronal population responsible for all this cortical communication. So that was great news. Um, and then we said, all right, what about the function analysis? So he played the organoids on top of these multi-electrode arrays, and he recorded over time. Um, this is the behavior of the networks um, of the controls in the first graphics. And um, in, in, in dark blue is the patients, and in, in light blue is uh, the patients after 
the uh, viral correction. And you see that we're able to restore some of this network activity. Again, um, very nicely done. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad that this program was picked up by uh, Mazi, which is a, a company that does clinical trials. And these vectors are now being tested in monkeys for toxicity. Once we clear the toxicity, these would be moved uh, into uh, clinical trials. So we're not expecting any side effects but the FDA will require that we test uh, those vectors um, in, in primates' brains uh, just to avoid any um, a surprise when you're doing the clinical trial. Um, so this is a proof of principle that you can actually correct the gene inside uh, brain organoids and, and rescue not only the cellular defects, the molecular defects, but also the network defects, um, giving us confidence that this might actually work in vivo as well in the patient's uh, brain. Um, so we, in my lab, we're expanding these ideas uh, to other genes. Um, this is uh, another program that we have um, for CDKL5 uh, deficient syndrome. Um, if you have mutations in CDKL5, uh, you have a very early onset of seizures. Uh, when, when you are like a newborn with uh, three to four months uh, of age, you start having seizures. So that's dramatically affect your neurodevelopment. Um, and this is due um, to the hyperexcitability of these networks. Um, the bar in the middle shows how hyperexcitable is the networks compared to the black bar, which is the control in the organoids. And now, if we just replace the gene back into the organoids, you see how can we reduce this hyperexcitability, most likely eliminating the susceptibility to seizures. So this is another program that um, uh, it's moving on uh, for a potential uh, clinical trial. Um, and we think that the earlier we act, the better for these patients. Um, and finally, we have another one uh, for rat syndrome. This is a gene uh, called MECP2. It's a epigenetic gene. Um, we showed that we and others, we showed that there are many defects associated with uh, alterations in brain organoids um, that carry that mutation. Uh, most importantly, if you place uh, the organoids from RET syndrome in these multi-electrode arrays, uh, they will show a deficiency as well. Um, and now if you add the virus, uh, the little bit of green that you have in that organoid in there is um, the small number of cells that we are able to uh, 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 infect with the AAV. And um, this is a nice curve showing that as you increase the dose of the virus, you restore the electrical activity of the population. Um, and what I think it's, uh, it's quite important, and we still don't know yet how that works, is that the number of infected cells here is less than 5%. I mean, we are getting like a very low infection, but that's enough to correct the entire network. Um, so that gives me hope that uh, the brain is so plastic that even with uh, just 5% of functional cells, uh, you are able to overcome um, all the uh, genetic defects. So genetic is not deterministic if you have the proper environment um, uh, for the neurons to thrive. So that's, that's quite um, important. So there are many other uh, alterations related to autism. This is just like a, a sample of uh, the conditions or the genetic alterations that we are doing in the lab. Uh, most of these conditions, we don't have a, even animal models to do that. Um, so we generate brain organoids. Uh, we test for therapeutics. We test if we can find drugs. Um, we test if we can find the gene therapy approach. Um, there are now antisense oligonucleotides, ASOs. You might hear about that. 
So that's another possibility. And the goal is uh, really to show proof of principle and accelerate, speed up all the clinical trials. And I'm glad to say that over the years, um, the FDA is being more and more sympathetic uh, to this model, understanding the need um, to really push um, this type of therapies uh, further on. All right. So proof of principle, um, we have it in our hands in different stages of development now. What are the next steps? There is one major problem uh, with uh, the gene therapy, especially uh, in autism, especially for the syndromic profound autism. It is that uh, not everybody does uh, genome sequencing. This is something that... Um, it's not like mainstream. Uh, most of the doctors don't even prescribe that because they don't even understand the value of that. Um, or, um, to be honest, I mean, even if you have the, uh, 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 the gene right now, there is not much you can do, but you can start already uh, personalizing the treatment. Um, and um, even if you uh, cannot do that, I mean, uh, you might be able to participate in these future clinical trials. And the problem that we are having is to recruit enough patients for these clinical trials because we don't know where they are. I mean, uh, we might have good foundations such as the RAT syndrome, the CDKL5, the Pete Hopkins that help us to map all the, uh, the patients uh, in, in the world. Um, but what about all the other 100 genes related to autism? We still don't have foundations being formed. We still don't know how many of those are affected. Uh, we don't know where they are. Um, but the good news is that um, genome sequencing is getting uh, cheaper. People are having access to that. Um, there are more uh, conscious about uh, the value of that. So people are doing it. So what we decided to do is to create um, an app uh, called TismoMe. On that app, you just plug your information and you add uh, the genetic alteration that you find um, in your report. And, um, and, and, and researchers like me or, or doctors or even family members, they can search um, by the characteristics, by the gene mutations or by the profile and be able to connect to each other. Um, so we initially thought about doing that uh, for the science, uh, but we realized that there is way more um, benefits on creating um, the first social media for autism, actually. That, that's what it becomes, uh, because there are several stakeholders um, that might take advantage of a social network like that. So we are seeing like families connecting and exchanging information among them. Um, some have... Uh, 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 kids that are older, some had kids that are younger, and being able to connect with the families, what they try, what kind of drugs it work, uh, what kind of treatments they're doing, how they're progressing in life, it's really value um, for other families. So that's that's a plus. Um, but also, I mean, all the all, uh, doctors are now finding ways to to find other families to point or to ask questions about all these specific genetic alterations. Because honestly, we don't have natural history for most of them. So we don't know how they progress, what are uh, the clinical symptoms uh, associated with specific mutations. So that's the uh, the value of that. Um, and, um, and we created in a way that uh, you can opt in uh, for research, so it's not automatic. You actually see a value on that, uh, and you decided to participate, and the data is yours, and it's fully protected. Um, so we, we are running like a pilot experiment um, in Brazil with my colleagues over there. Uh, I think we have about 5,000 uh, people already connected and using the network. Uh, the next phase is really the um, expansion uh, to other countries. And we really hope that this tool will facilitate not only the research, 
but the interaction among families, among um, uh, therapeutics, among among medical doctors. Um, so we'll see how, how this goes. I mean, the network would be shaped by us. Um, so we create the network, we can shape it, uh, and, and we, we, we can evolve the way we want. So it's really uh, something that um, we should take advantage of. All right, so um, I'm, I'm, I'm stopping um, soon uh, just to, to take comments and questions, but these are uh, the major uh, take-home messages that I, I, I hope you, you keep in mind. Um, uh, profound autistic individuals are likely the most vulnerable population and, and might benefit from gene therapies. Um, so um, uh, again, I mean, in, in the context of the whole spectrum, this is not for everyone. This is uh, for the ones who actually need it. Um, so the science is working towards that, towards uh, improve of the conditions, improve of the symptoms. Uh, we might not be able to get um, to a full cure, um, but we might improve some of the symptoms. We might eliminate some of the comorbid comorbidities um, with a gene therapy approach. So it acts on the root of the problem. So human brain organoids um, can be derived from autistic individuals and they function as a gene therapy approach or as a proof of principle um, and might be useful tools for preclinical assays. So we can already test the vector toxicity, some of those um, uh, fundamental uh, uh, issues that uh, the FDA might, might get back to us uh, before we move into a uh, proper clinical trial. And then um, finding these individuals with profound autism, with specific mutations in the same genes, it is and continues to be a major challenge. I have, um, we have some programs uh, for specific genes, uh, and when we ask the help for some of the pharmaceutics, um, they are refusing because uh, the patients are not organized. They don't know how many patients are there. They don't have a foundation. They don't have, they don't have natural history. So it's sitting in my lab and it's not moving forward because we don't have that. So we hope that uh, a network like TismoMe might actually help to um, speed up um, all these uh, um, uh, uh, challenges that we have right now. All right. Um, I would like to thank all the members of my lab. Full disclosure, I'm a co-founder of Tismo. Tismo is a genetic company that actually founded uh, Tismo Me. Um, and these are members of my lab. I highlight mostly the work from Fabio here, but there are so many people working on, 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 on these brain organoids right now. And um, we are uh, in depth uh, to all the families that actually contribute to our research, that donates uh, their time that comes to visit the lab, donate their fibroblasts, um, and actually help us uh, to shape uh, the way we are moving with our our science here. So, thank you very much. Some questions came in. One from uh, Claudia Villarreal: Will this therapy help a teenager, sixteen years old, who suffered from severe hypoxia at birth? As a result, at present time, uh, has severe speech delay, intellectual disability, and autism, question mark, genetical study was done, no other reason for his delay was found. Yeah, so there is several conditions where, uh, first of all, it might not be caused by a genetic alteration. Uh, right. And, uh, and the question is, can, can we do something about it? Well, I mean, the traditional gene therapy might not work, but uh, again, we might hack uh, some other genes that facilitate uh, the uh, plasticity of the brain uh, to help those um, that have hypoxia early in life. Um, what I'm learning is that the human brain is way more plastic than we thought before. 
Um, there are people walking around with just half of the brain and we don't even know because we don't study them because we don't, I mean, they don't go to the doctor because they're not complaining. Um, but the brain can do things that uh, we are very surprised. So I, I trust the plasticity of the human brain. And I think we're going to find how to modulate such a plasticity um, even later in life. So I, I, I truly believe that that's possible. Hi. Um, my name is Kyle Cabrera. I'm a student at UCSD. I wanted to ask, um, in going beyond organoids, as far as what you believe the next steps are for this gene therapy treatment, do you personally believe that the cell type, the cell species matters in terms of different regions of the brain? And I ask because in learning about um, genetics thus far um, in my major, I have learned that there are there is evidence suggesting that certain regions of the brain develop slightly differently in utero for um, people that have autism spectrum disorders, the cuneus, for instance, and that may not necessarily be the case for other species of cells in different regions. Do you feel like um, the focal targeting of these specific areas and the development of these areas is going to be important going forward? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And that's why I think we need a better representation of all the cell, cell types in the organoids that we currently don't have at all. Um, but, uh, but we have the major one. So it's very reductionist, but I, th I, I think it's a, it's a good starting point. Um, and I do think that the species matter. Um, the, for example, the most used animal model in biomedical research is the mouse. Um, and you have a fully formed mouse brain 20 days. So the human brain takes like nine months and is still immature. Um, so the species and the cell type and the background, the genetic background do matters. And I think that's why we, we are failing miserable on, um, developing drugs for the, um, the brain, um, because we never had like a good model system. So I have high hopes for, for the, the tiny organoids. Yeah. Here's another question. An uh, anonymous attendee, going back to the beginning of your presentation and from your perspective, is the activism from highly functional Asperger's autistic individuals hurting the profound autistic individuals? By the way, that word that you used up there, profound, which is obviously very, uh, you know, well known to this community and so on. I mean, I was look. Uh, these these words are turning up in in articles now. Yeah. Um, what, well, first of all, what do we mean by profound autism? Yeah, I think um, it is a tentative or a way um, to really characterize that population that is, is most vulnerable. Going back to your first question, uh, and by the way, not, not everybody agrees on the term profound autism. I think scientists are slowly embracing it uh, because it helps to describe. When I say profound, everybody gets, all right. Um, we know what you're talking about, are the most vulnerable ones. Um, but um, and, and this is true with all the autism terminology. It, it doesn't make 100% of the people happy. So some people don't like this, uh, this term. Um, but uh, yeah, the, I think the community is, is slowly embracing it. Uh, we'll see. Um, and if the, uh, the activism of uh, the high-functioning autism is hurting uh, the ones on the profound autism? And the answer is yes, unfortunately. And that's why I think it's important to contextualize. Um, we already had instances um, 
um, where uh, scientists had been attacked in conferences um, or, uh, or or bashing social media because of such such terms. Um, and one example is the use of patient as a terminology. Um, these are patient. Um, and then, I mean, if you say that in social media, oh my gosh, people will, will go after you. Um, and I think it's just, um, it's either lack of knowledge or lack of contextualization, because I don't think um, this population, the high functioning, are lack empathy. I think maybe they are just not aware uh, of what, what's going on. So I think, again, I mean, that's why I encourage all the scientists to contextualize their research um, and explaining exactly what you're doing. Uh, because once you explain, I mean, and, and we try with this community, uh, in, in ATPF, we have uh, several high functioning, uh, autistic individuals and we talk equally. They fully understand what's going on. I mean, they're not against a treatment for the profound autism, but because we have been working with them for a long time. This is not true in other parts of the country, in other parts of the world, but we need to catch up. So as a parent of an autistic child, um, I believe some of the issues came in utero and um, there's no history of autism on either side of the family for that we can tell for generations. So I'm wondering, so I understand you're coming from the gene aspect of it. What if it, it's environmental aspect? Or how do you address that versus the genes? Yeah. So, um, first of all, by not having a history of autism in the family doesn't mean that it's not genetic. Because there are mutations that acquire uh, during development. The person, we call them private mutations or de novo mutations. Um, so it's still wor worth investigating if they um, don't have like private mutations. Um, but nonetheless, there are certain types of autism or conditions that resemble autism that are caused by um, environmental factors. Um, and we know a few of them, um, and um, and uh, it's still, uh, I mean, gene therapy might not work because there is no gene involved, um, but we in the lab are investigating potential drug treatments. So there are maybe some drugs that might actually help the networks to reestablish, uh, help the formation of synapses. Um, one of the first work that we had uh, for Rett syndrome was not on gene therapy, it was on finding a drug, um, and that was IGF-1, um, and in, in our tissue culture, IGF-1 works beautifully. So we restore all the synapses that were missing um, in, in, in rat syndrome. Um, the problem with the clinical trials was that IGF-1, insulin growth factor 1, was a long molecule, was not penetrating the brain. Um, so it, it failed until a company called Neurin created like a short version of that molecule that now penetrates much better in the brain. And I think it's a probably the first drug to be approved for rat syndrome. So there are um, uh, hope for drug treatment as well. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.